Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Book of Exodus, chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Please rise with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, is go God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, Philly team. It's good to have you back. And um, uh, I'm I just, uh, just so happy, you know, when people come back and it's like a family reunited uh, I saw some pictures of them worshiping last Sunday, and I was thinking to myself, I'm just going to be honest, I'm glad I'm here. No, no, I was really happy for you, and I saw you guys worshiping with all your heart. That was awesome. Um, you know, uh, one of the interesting things I get to do is I think, you know, I think people, when they talk to me um, and they find out who I am, it, it changes that person and then they start saying different things, or sharing more or less. I don't know. It depends on the person. I had one. I had one interesting conversation uh, with an older gentleman that was in his 60s, and um, just wanted to talk to me. Once I found, once he found out what I did, he completely opened up, and he started going, you know. And he didn't go to church, but he said, you know what you should do. You gotta teach these young people what to do. You got to teach them morality. And I was just listening. Um, and so now it's just, it's very interesting that all of a sudden he became this, like really passionate almost to say, you got to teach young people morality. And then he proceeded on. Uh, he talked to me for about an hour, but for an hour he proceeded. And then when he went on, he shared with me this. He said, when you go to H Mart, and I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is, this is all real. Um, when you go to H Mart and you bring your cart out, you have to put the cart back. That's what you should teach in church. Because when you don't put the cart back, it's just the worst thing. Like he was telling me, like when you don't put the cart back from after you go to the supermarket and it's just everywhere, those people should be like judged and punished. And uh, he's like, this is what you should teach. And I, I was just saying, okay, this, this person really needs Jesus, <laughs> first of all. But secondly, 
That's an interesting thing that when we come together and we talk about religion, people automatically think, is it about morality? Some of you who have been going to church a long time think almost automatically the other way. It's not morality. It's not religion. It's Jesus. Um, I don't even know what that means. If you went to someone and said that, they would be like, what are you talking about? And so what is it? Is it about putting the carts back at H Mart after you're done shopping? Does that make you a good person? What was really funny was he shared with me sometimes because of certain situations, he can't put the cart back in, that, in the place where you have to. And I was like, you just judged yourself by your own standard and the simple standard of just putting your cart back. But I didn't say that. I said, that's, that's, it's okay. It's okay, brother. Um, but is it about morality? If so, what is the moral standard of Christians? And that's a really, really important question for us to ask because we have to know, right? What is the moral standard of Christians? And I want to share with you the highest moral standard of Christians is worship. It's worship. Putting the cart back is good. Following traffic laws, it's good. But the highest standard that we are to adhere to is worship. And that's why time and time again, for the last few weeks, we've been going over this. What is our attitude in worship? What is, it, what is the attitude when we're standing up and singing? What is the attitude when we're sitting down, absorbing, listening, and being quiet before the Lord, letting the Word change us? What is our attitude when we gather together and when we scatter in worship? And so we come to this point. The Israelites are set free, and what's the first thing that they do as they're finally set free? They sing this song. It's, one of the, it's, it's uh, the first greatest song recorded in Scripture. And so there's four points that I want to go over with you today. And these are the four points. Uh, started from the bottom. Now Yahweh is here. Uh, <laughs> It's one of those weeks, yeah, it's like, ah, okay. So that's point number one. Number two is myopia's cure, utopia's allure. Number three is a prose by any other name. And number four is for bitter or for worse. So those are the four points. I hope you can follow along. Usually I don't say my points, but I, I kind of weave in and out. But once again, started from the bottom, now Yahweh is here. I don't know why you're laughing. That's just what it is. And uh, second point is myopia's cure, utopia's allure, a prose by any other name, and for bitter or for worse. Started from the bottom. This is the first great song in Scripture. It's interesting to note when the song comes out. It's after Pharaoh and his chariots are completely annihilated. God not only shows up in Egypt, he defangs them, thereby completely making them harmless to the Israelites. That's why it's time to celebrate. And how do they celebrate? In song. When God led his people out of Egypt to give worship services to him, it starts with a song. Songs are very important to this very history of God's people. And this particular one, it's about how the Lord triumphed gloriously 
over the horse and the rider. In fact, the horse and the rider, the chariots, the officers, the horse and the rider being swallowed up by the sea is mentioned again and again. Pharaoh and his chariots inflicted great pain to the Israelites. And ancient depictions like drawings of Egyptian chariots show them mowing over their opponents, if you see these pictures, proving superiority to those that stood against them. And so the horse and the rider stood for something you could not defeat in a million years. Sure, God may have showed himself more powerful than Pharaoh, but what about the Israelites? They would be mowed down in an instant. And so the song starts by saying that the way the Lord triumphed gloriously was by throwing the horse and its rider into the sea. So who or what does the horse and the rider or chariot symbolize? Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, he would go on to write that it symbolized lust and giving into these pleasures. Plato even wrote before Clement in his book On the Soul that the charioteer and the horse stood for anger and concupiscence. And so at the times of their writing, I do believe that these things, when reigned and controlled by another, brought disaster. Anger, left unchecked, would make a man a murderer. Sexual immorality, left unchecked, would make you untrustworthy at every level. And I find it interesting that in our day and age, that these two things, anger and sexual immorality, are either glossed over, minimized, and or even cheered in our leaders and celebrities. So anger, lust, sexual immoralities, these things appertain to sin. Sin and any sin left unchecked aims to mow you down and destroy you. That's why even from the very beginning, God warned Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What happened right after Cain killed Abel? But after you have been freed from captivity, it's the sin that was riding after you, chasing you all the way to the edge of the sea. But with a blast of his nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood in a heap, the seabed became hardened like a road for people to cross over. Verse 8, and when the enemy rode in after them, what happened? The sea covered them and they sank like a lead weight. You know, Augustine sees this as symbolizing baptism, baptism, and how when you get baptized, you go down into the water too, and your sins go down into the water too, but you come up, and guess what doesn't come up? Sin doesn't come up. And he wrote this, all our past sins, you see, which have been pressing on us, as it were, from behind, he has drowned and obliterated in baptism. These dark things of ours were being ridden by unclean spirits as their mounts, and like horsemen they were riding them wherever they liked. 
That's why the apostle calls them rulers of this darkness. We have been rid of all this through baptism as through the Red Sea, so-called because sanctified by the blood of the crucified Lord. So let us not turn back to Egypt in our hearts, but with him as our protector and guide, let us wend our way through other trials and temptations of the desert toward the kingdom. Myopia's cure, utopia's allure. You know, the second stanza of this song, verses 13 to 18, is about now that we've come up from the sea and our enemy destroyed, we make our way to the promised land. So how do we know what to do or where to go? Pastor Gene, we're out now. We're out from the clutches of whatever was binding us. We are free, and now there is a place that we need to get to. How do we know what to do, where to go? I think the real question is, how do we see? How do we see? In verse 13, it says, You have led in your steadfast love, which is the word chesed, a word so deep we needed two words to translate the one. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You know, if you really look at this sentence, why is it past tense? Could it be? And some people, some scholars and some people thought, could it be that the people already got to the promised land and then they liked this song that they made up, so they just inserted it in, in this section right here in chapter 15? Because it's past tense. You know what? To be honest, that seems a little disingenuous to me. It also seems way unnecessary. If they wrote this song when they got to the promised land, wouldn't they have just put it when they wrote it? Why all this trouble to insert it just right here? And some may struggle with it, but I personally don't. Uh, in East Asian culture, or languages, to make an emphatic statement. To make an emphatic statement, we state things in the past. You know, when someone messes with you and you go, you're dead, right? When someone is messing with you, you go, you're dead. That's a joke, right? You're not going to actually kill the person, hopefully. <clears throat> but you're dead is actually a present tense sentence, right? You are dead. You are currently in the state of being dead. So it's like a present tense. But in Eastern languages, the closer translation would be, you died. If you said it in Korean or Chinese, you would say, instead of being like, you're dead, you would say, you died. That's why if someone from Korea or from some uh, other Southeast Asian uh, country would come here and you would mess around, instead of saying, you're dead, they would go, you dead, you know, that kind of thing, because it's past tense. Um, and if you don't believe me, then after the service, just use Google Translate. You can type in, you are dead, and it won't finish the sentence. It won't, it won't know how to translate it. And then if you type in, you died, it'll type in, it'll say the Korean or Chinese sentence that you would say that's equivalent to, you're dead, that kind of thing. But I was surprised that when I was learning Hebrew, how much more similar it was to Korean than it was to English. But this is done for emphasis. 
It's an emphatic statement when we say something in the past tense. So this emphatic statement is made first by stating where, where they were currently to where they were going. So back to the question, how do you see? How do you see? By faith, little by little, every day. By faith, little by little, every day. It says, pangs have seized Philistia. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Philistia, where the Philistines resided, Philistia was closest to Egypt. Then Edom, which was the next closest. Then Moab, which was the closest after that, all the way to Canaan, their last stop. How do you see? By faith, little by little, every day. A prose by any other name. The song is concluded with a prose summary, and it leads to a very exciting and interesting section. At least to me it is. Miriam, the prophetess, would lead again a song with a tambourine. And I love what's revealed here, the what and the how. What do we sing? Verse 21 is identical to verse 1 when Miriam sings it. We sing what's already been revealed to us by God in Scripture. Excuse me. We don't sing about God being capricious, Because he isn't. It's not in the scripture, and that's not his character. We don't just tack on attributes to him that the Bible doesn't say he is. As if the attributes that the Bible claims he is isn't enough. Us tacking on in addition to what the Bible says he is tells us more about us than about God. So how do we sing it? Do we sing it like this? Like, do we sing it like this? Do we have this high liturgy, high worship, or do we sing it, you unravel me? <laughs> Excuse me. I was practicing that. I was like, I got to smoke maybe 30 more years of cigarettes, and then I'll get that. But you know what? How do we sing it? We come singing with everything that we have, every instrument, every piece of musical knowledge, the tambourine in Hebrew was anamatapoetic, which is, which is katop. It sounds like katop. That's why they called it the katop. They're like, bring the katop. We're going to katop it out here. You know that? They were excited. It was, it was time for some fun. You know, um, you know you're about to have some fun when you go to the guys like, yo, bring the and then we'll have some fun. That's what they were saying. Let's jam. And the Miriam led them in this incredible, incredible time of singing. That's how we are to sing and worship God. <clears throat> Finally, for better or for worse, the Bible says that when they set out from the Red Sea, They went into the wilderness, and they found no water. And when we get to verse 23, if you've been paying attention, the phrasing gets a little weird. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. It's like, okay, we get it, right? But the word for bitter in Hebrew is mar, right? And mar 
and was bitter, and the place where they went to was Mara, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of a play on words. It's almost like a pun, but it was like the place when they came to bitter, they couldn't drink the water of bitter because it was bitter. That's, that's why it's called bitter. And so there is this play on words happening in verse 23. It's almost as if we're to pause right here to reflect on bitterness. So what happens after that? The people grumbled against Moses. What shall we drink? And Moses would in turn cry out to the Lord. God would show him this tree or log and to throw into the water, and it became sweet. For this last illustration, I need uh, a helper. So maybe I could get our pastoral intern to come up here and um, it's just a quick illustration. So let's say we're walking by, and then we're just going to pass each other, and then, oh, he bumps, and then I spill it right on him. There's nothing in here. I, <laughs> thank you. Uh, <clears throat> if you think about this illustration, what just happened when he bumped me and I spilled the cup over, next time I'll put something nice for you. Uh, and I spilled the cup over, we have to think about it like this. What comes out of the cup? What's in the cup? When does it come out? When we're bumped. So what comes out of us is what we're holding. And so how do you know what you're holding? I know what you're holding when you get bumped, because it'll just come out. So when you get bumped and you have bitterness in you, guess what's going to come out? A bitter talk. What is this? We're going to die of thirst. What are you doing? And I get it, because this is something that the Lord is challenging me, and I believe he's challenging all our leaders and all of you as well. You know, whenever someone cuts you off, that's a bump. What comes out of you after someone cuts you off? You know, when something bad happens and your boss says the same thing again to you, get those TPS reports ready. Ah, what happens when you get bumped? What comes out is what's in you. And that's what we need to recognize. When we get bumped, what comes out is what we've been holding. And if it's bitter water, guess what comes out of us? Bitterness. It's after God does this, the word says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to, my vo- to the voice of the Lord your God, and do which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. He doesn't say, I am the God who heals. He says, well, he doesn't say, I am the God that heals, as in, I heal this water so you can drink it. Don't you get it? All this talk about Mar and Mara and this bitterness. He doesn't go, I am the Lord, the healer of the water. After this, he says, I am the Lord, your healer. 
And we can't miss this point. In verse 25, the Lord showed him. The word showed is where they get the root for the word Torah, which is the first five books of the Pentateuch or law or what it means to teach. And the word showed. So what did God show? He, what did God teach? He said, throw the log. And what's the log? The Hebrew word for log is ace. Ace. And the Torah mentions this exact word in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, and 22 and 23. It says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, which is ace, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, ace, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 21. The tree that was thrown into the bitter waters so we can live. Not only that, the water becomes sweet. That was Jesus on the cross. Jesus took the cross's curse and that when it was thrown into the bitter waters, finally, instead of bitterness coming out, guess what happens when we're bumped? Sweet water comes out. How does that happen? It happens when you follow the teachings of the Lord. And where do the teachings of the Lord point us to? It points us to the log. It points us to the cross. It points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ needs to be thrown into your lives. And then your life is made sweet. That's when, when we get bumped, something else happens now. And we bless rather than curse. Because what's in us we're filled with blessing. We're filled with joy. We're filled with hope. We see little by little. We see that we did start from down here, but now God is up here and he's bringing us closer and closer to him. That's why we can respond in song and say, praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Once again, I want to end with this. The tree that was thrown into the bitter waters so we can live. That was Jesus on the cross. He took the cross's curse when he was thrown into the bitter waters so that we can become sweet again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. As your word teaches us and guides us, help us to hold on to the cross. And there are things that the world still would seem to have reign over us, fear over us, control over us. And we pray now that in faith, little by little, we would see your cross doing its supernatural work in our very lives and in this church. Make the bitter waters sweet, O oh Lord. We ask this 
in your precious son's name, Jesus Christ. Let's pray now. And there are things in our lives, and it may have been recently when we were bumped, something came out and it wasn't sweet. You know what? We need to hold on to the cross again. We need to say, I need to be taught. Teach me again. Show me this log. Show me the cross. Show me the power of Jesus Christ again in my life so that I could hold on to you and be transformed and renewed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let's pray to God in that kind of faith. And He is good. He can change hearts. And He will as we depend on Him. Pray to Him. Lift up your hearts to the Lord.